David Haradine. Thank you. Um, whose paper is entitled "Do you? Um, How do you feel when men and girls dance?" Um, and if you'd like to see an abstract of the paper and also a full um, biography, do you have any put your notes? So, David, over to you. Thank you very much. Um, firstly, to say this is not a paper; um, it's a a laptop presentation by the look of it but um, really what I wanted to offer was uh, just a series of reflections on a practice research project called Men and Girls Dance um, which I hope will just open up some spaces for questions and reflections of, uh, on some of the, the themes of this, this two day event um, but before talking about the project and just really as an aside I, I just wanted to make an observation, and I've spoken to Finton already to, to flag up to him that my observation, again, is not a criticism, it just, um, uh, again, I observed how I felt about something when I first encountered it. Um, uh, the, the structure of um, today's sessions, with some people who have been grouped together as academics, talking on academic research uh, this morning, and are these people laying down some proper intellectual ground? And then some people grouped as artists or theatre makers this afternoon. And I wonder if they're here to do the emotional stuff again. Um, I'm co-artistic director of a company called Fevered Sleep. That's my full-time job. And Fevered Sleep is an independent arts-producing organisation that works across art forms. Um, making collaborative, research-based work. My part-time job is as Professor of Interdisciplinary Practice at Royal Central School of Speech and Drama, Central. So I'm an artist who holds an academic post and whose research spans both industry and academia, and I think that's significant for these thoughts that I want to share on this project. Um, so as an artist researcher, or as a researching artist, um, one of the sets of difficult feelings that I come up against again and again are feelings that concern um, professional identity, my professional identity as an artist researcher. Um, what I am and who I am seems to shapeshift in different contexts. Um, this appears to be confusing, not so much for me, but for other people, it seems. And perhaps despite the expansive and extensive discourse around practice research in all its forms, um, I'm not convinced that the idea that researchers can be artists and that artists are researchers is really fully understood. So this kind of prologue um, observation it's just to do with the fact that it seems to me that before we even get into the territory of difficult feelings within research projects or um, difficult feelings around particular um, research subjects, we can come up against the difficult feelings of how we feel about our research and how we feel about being this thing called a researcher and how uh, this thing called being a researcher is defined by us and, and by other people. Um, there can be difficult feelings about how... Our research is situated in established hierarchical systems that value different kinds of knowledge very differently and that value certain kinds of knowledge producers, certain kinds of researchers more highly than others. So just right now, with that point, what am I feeling? Um, some confusion, some frustration, some tiredness, 
Uh, tired of having to go through this sort of defensive, sort of apologetic, sort of irritated explanation again. Um, I didn't come here to talk about these feelings of confusion or frustration or irritation, but since I have, anyway, um, we may as well acknowledge that our research identities and methodologies and contexts and institutions all foster all sorts of complex feelings and difficult feelings before we even start to do any research. <laughs> but to talk about some research. Um, so, as I said, I'd like to share some thoughts and feelings about this, this project, Men and Girls Dance, which I've been working on with Fevered Sleep since 2015. Um, just a super quick explanation of the project. It exists in, in three totally interconnected parts. A, a performance piece, which is performed by five adult male professional dancers uh, and nine girls aged between eight and 11 who dance as a hobby. Dance is not their profession um, for various reasons. Um, this performance is accompanied by a, a newspaper which is published and republished in each place that we present the project with local, locally specific content. Um, and it's also accompanied by this thing which we call the talking place, which is literally a, a space hosted by an associate artist, um, which invites people to come and talk about the themes of the project. And these three parts exist completely independently and appear in totally different sorts of spaces from shopping centres to theatres to laundrettes and libraries. So there's lots of different mechanisms through which people can come into contact with and reflect on what they think and feel about the themes of the project. The themes of the project, I guess, or the question that the project asks, is what has, why, what has gone so wrong about what we think and feel about how men interact with children? Um, why, why is it that for many people the first thought or the first feeling which surfaces when thinking about men being with children is negative? Um, what has happened to masculinity and to intergenerational relationships to make that the case? Um, and the project speaks to that context, that social, political, media context and departs from it and offers an alternative to it hopefully. Um, it's a touring project and each place that we present it is recreated with um, girls from the local community. So it isn't a piece that is just shown to audiences in particular places, it's a piece which is recreated differently in different local contexts. <clears throat> We've presented it in all sorts of spaces, theatres, wedding venues, like meeting rooms, um, and then this, this summer we presented a version at Tate Britain and I'm just going to show you the trailer from Tate Britain. It's like a minute and a half, and it's just to give you a flavour of the project. It's a trailer, so its purpose is promotion. So please watch it in that context. Um, and let's hope that the internet is good and it streams. Sounds here.
looking backwards. He is touching the ground. His legs are moving around him. He is reaching towards the sky. I always love the YouTube recommendations that pop up at the end of that. <laughs> Mozart and Beethoven and, yeah, Hockney. Okay. Um, let's... Ah, sorry, forgive me. Give me a sec. Let's just get back to that. Um, okay, so as I, as I said, the context for this, this project, um, the departure point for want, wanting to make it was the, the, the discourse around relationships between men and children, which, as far as I can tell, are overwhelmingly negative. The social, political, educational discourse around that relationship um, is, is troubled and troubling. And, of course, there, is, there are a small number of men who wish to do children harm. The vast majority of us don't, but the potential... And possibilities of many men have been affected by those acts of the few. And we wanted to make a project which speaks to that. It's worth noting that I'm one of the two creators of the project. The other is a woman. I think that's significant. The kind of gendered relationships and relationships of power which surface in, in the project. And we can talk more about that if that's interesting. Um, so the, the project proposes a different way of being. And it uses dance, a physical form. Um, <clears throat> To, to suggest ultimately something very simple, that it is possible for these relationships to be celebrated, to be joyful, to be safe, to be desired, uh, and, and to, be po to be positive. But alongside, alongside these ultimately very positive, I hope, aspects of the project and the, those aspirations for it, we still come up every time we recreate it against all sorts of difficult feelings. And perhaps it's been by tackling those most difficult feelings head-on that we've had to do the most careful thinking about what the project is um, and what it potentially means. What are these difficult feelings? Secrecy, embarrassment, suspicion, guilt and dishonesty. I really hesitated about coming to declare those sorts of feelings, but... This is what I was invited to do. So I shall talk about my own dishonesty and um, guilt in this project. I think it's what provoked my question about guilt to you. <laughs> um, these are the feelings that surface in the research process, in the work, and in me as an artist researcher. There are, there are then also all sorts of complex and difficult feelings and responses that also surface in the audience for the work. And these feelings, and the extent to which they might become difficult perhaps are directly related to the project's potential impact? Is it more impactful, the more difficult the feelings it provokes? This is a particular aspect of practice research, perhaps. Um, how the feelings that surface in the researcher or in the research process, and then that surface again um, within and through audiences, how those two things um, 
relate to each other. And given that the definition of academic research's impact, according to Hefke, is only related to impact outside academia, it seems to me that thinking about the feelings, difficult and otherwise, that research might engender in people who encounter it is really significant um, and directly related to this, this increasingly important aspect of research called impact. So here's one specific, specific example of um, some difficult emotional terrain in men and girls' dance. The, the girls are aged between 8 and 11. They're children. Um, we know that the project is speaking to a certain set of discourses which represent men and children in certain ways and that construct relationships in certain ways. We don't ever talk about that with the girls who take part in the project. And um, several times when negotiating with their parents about their participation in the project, and with their parents we declare very openly what it's about, what the purpose is, what we hope to open up uh, in terms of debate with audiences. Several parents have, have specifically said, we would like her to take part, but on the condition that she doesn't know what you're doing or why you're doing it. Um, so there are suddenly two parallel projects. There's this project which all the adults are party to, which is about the politics of certain intergenerational, intergender relationships. And then there's this other project, which is something to do with taking part in a professional dance piece. And those two things have to be kept apart. So what does it mean to keep secrets from a group of your closest research collaborators and participants as a well-intentioned kind of child protection. What are the ethical implications of building a safeguarding practice based on not telling the truth? Um, or if that's too strong, I don't think it is, at least based on withholding information from participants in the research. So we find ourselves in this really strange and paradoxical place where it was our sense of responsibility towards the children taking part and the extent to which we had to keep them safe that led us to adopt a, ultimately, I feel, unethical position of lying to them. Why are there only men <coughs> dancing in this show? Why are there no women dancers? They often ask. And we can't answer that question truthfully. We have to make a different answer. Oh, it's because their bodies are most different and we're really interested in different sorts of people dancing together. And then we divert to a different sort of conversation. So this paradox runs right to the heart of the project theme. The question of whether or not children can trust adults. Whether or not what adults say and do in the presence of children is really what it seems. So what am I feeling here? Confusion, contradiction, guilt and massive self-doubt. Those audience responses that I mentioned before can also be thought of in, in similar ways. These two parallel experiences. Um, some people who encounter the work, thankfully, see a positive, joyful celebration of healthy intergenerational relationships. Others have said that they see a performative manifestation of grooming. We've had actual feedback, some of it published, in the public domain, some of it sent to us privately, some of it on Twitter, 
which uses the language of grooming to critique the project, claims that in front of an audience of 500 people, a child is being groomed, a child is being prepared for some kind of abuse. Um, so again, how do I feel about that? Confused, devastated, incandescent with anger, sad, guilty, validated, threatened, as well as energised and damned, determined to continue. Uh, the second, I've only got two examples, there's all sorts of big challenges, but the second big challenge that I wanted to share as an example that's emerged at several points through the process of making this project um, relates again really paradoxically to the sorts of relationships between the men and the girls taking part that need to develop in order for the performance to be possible, particularly because of the, um, the physical medium, dance, through which the research takes place. Performers have to develop intimacy, trust, empathy, and a kind of intense, if temporary, friendship in order for the work of performance to take place. And in a project like Men and Girls Dance, where a significant part of the research methodology is to do with improvisation and kind of the active choice, potential agency of the children in terms of determining the structure of the performance, these are essential qualities. These deep relationships of trust, intimacy and empathy are essential for that to work. But what does it mean for a man and a girl to become friends in a temporary and intense sort of way in this project? How do I feel about that as one of the people who creates a context for that to happen? And what do I feel at the end of the project when we all say goodbye and the deep emotional wounds of separation are clear because I have constructed an, an intense and temporary friendship which I have then brought to an end. How can I continue in the context of their and my distress? Dancers need to have close physical contact. There has to be bodily trust, literally a trust in each other for safety. There has, to be, there has to be physical intimacy, proximity and contact, and contact through most of the surfaces of the body. The social political discourses that Men and Girls Dance speaks to are ultimately ones that prescribe what certain bodies can and can't do with other bodies. Whose bodies can dance with whose? Whose bodies have agency? Whose have power? What sorts of physical encounters are permissible and which are forbidden? What sorts of touch are allowed and which are not? And which parts of the body can be touched and by whom? And in what public and private spaces and to what end? What does it mean when a girl is dancing with a man whose body is covered in sweat? How can he work with his embarrassment? How can she work with her disgust? Would it be different if his body were dry? Why do I feel conflicted when his top rides up and the hair on his belly, a secondary sexual characteristic, as well as just a part of an ordinary man's body, becomes visible, and when she comments on it, and when she reaches out to twirl it? How do I respond to and act responsibly towards the girl who's upset in rehearsals because the hand of the man she's dancing with has accidentally brushed over her developing breast. Why do I find myself unsure whether it's okay for those three girls to be sitting in his lap 
having a chat during a break. Why am I suspicious about that? How does this man decline the friendship request he's got from her on Facebook? He knows he's not allowed to connect because it says so in our child protection policy. He also knows that if he doesn't connect, she'll be upset and feel rejected. He also knows he can't tell her why he can't connect because in his contract it says that he can't talk about what the project really means. <laughs> what feelings does all this produce? Confusion, dishonesty, guilt, suspicion, intimacy, embarrassment, shame and sadness. Uh, just to finish, so throughout the project we've only been able to continue to continue to make it again and again and again by being super aware of these difficult feelings, the positive and the negative, the easy and the difficult, as they've emerged out of the process and manifested themselves in the work. And we've acknowledged that the, the, the feelings, often the most difficult feelings, are important. They're important because they're the things that catalyze a response in the process itself as moments of insight or learning, but also ultimately a response in the audience, and therefore, again, in relation to impact and as a certain measure of success. So if there's some sort of conclusion to these reflections on Men and Girls Dance, it's something to do with this, um, that difficult feelings are productive feelings. Um, difficult feelings can be intentional. Difficult feelings can be answers, or difficult feelings can open up new questions. Difficult feelings remind us that research processes take place in and through living, breathing, moving, emotional, complex, contradictory, relational bodies, not in some abstract space of research. They take place, research takes place in and through relationships between researchers, subjects, participants and audiences. Difficult feelings aren't necessarily obstacles to a research process. They don't need to be avoided. They can be signposts. They can become points of discovery. They can be guides. Thank you. postgraduate researcher, so I'm glad that it's being directed to postgraduates in particular. Um, when I was reflecting on how I might approach the, the brief for this event, I, I thought to myself that if, if I was presenting it whilst I was a postgraduate student, so a few years ago, um, I probably would have reflected, and this actually might have connected more with what, <laughs> with what David was saying, but I'm sure we'll find connections anyhow, but I might have reflected on my experiences interviewing and having conversations with refugees who were also theatre practitioners, um, and deliberately not calling them refugee theatre practitioners, but, but people who were both, um, and some of the complicated expectations on each side of that conversation around um, a professional research relationship versus a friendship and the blurry kind of spaces in between. But 
perhaps we can talk about that afterwards. For better or worse, I'm, I'm approaching this um, today's session with a perhaps more amorphous kind of subject, but one that I think will resonate with, with you in, in a different sort of a way. So um, I'm sure all of us in this room, um, and that's postgraduate researchers and, um, and those who are no longer postgraduates, um, are familiar with that feeling of having presented something, a piece of research or a performance, and sensing that it misfired in some way. Um, it's a difficult sensation of unease that can be hard to derive meaning from, but particularly immediately or in the immediate aftermath. But it's a feeling that, for better or worse, constitutes one of the starting points um, for what I'm going to talk about today. And the other starting point is my own um, questioning of the kind of work that I do, um, the material that I identify for research, and the questions that I ask of that material, and who those questions are, are for, who they're really for. So I'm going to um, attempt to unpick, to situate, and hopefully begin to politicise some of the subtle and not-so-subtle ways in which we all um, resist and permit um, particular kinds of research. Um, and I do this in the context of my experiences as a scholar working on refugee, responsive theatre, performance, activism um, and community enactment, but working not in an applied or participatory mode. Um, so that is, although participatory work forms part of what I study, I'm not a scholar who makes work with refugees or asylum seekers. Um, and interestingly, in the sub-discipline of, of um, refugee arts scholarship, that can sometimes feel weirdly like a confession, and this informs some of what I'm talking about today. Um, so for anyone studying refugee responsive performance and culture, the contexts of embodiment and the conditions of appearance must always be prominent and ethically fraught concerns. Much work on refugees in theatre deals with inclusion, self-representation, the ownership of stories, and is rightly attentive to refugees' agency. Uh, Participation is a particularly high priority in the context of refugee topics, higher, I would suggest, than in many other um, areas of artistic practice and research. So in this subdisciplinary environment, scholarship that attempts to get to grips with work that, um, in which refugees don't have a direct stake, so whether non-refugee-originated theatre like Anders Lescutton's Lampedusa, or documentary film like Ai Weiwei's Human Flow, or community support marches initiated by citizens, or the glut of photojournalism that currently circulates, um, can be viewed with some suspicion. Analysis of such work in certain spheres can struggle to make an ethical case for itself, for why the cultural production of those operating from places of relative privilege is deserving of illumination when the project of recuperating marginalised refugee voices and narratives is both urgent and fathomless. Entangled with questions about who originates representations of refugees are those concerning vantage. The so-called EU migrant crisis, characterised as it has been by exceptional volumes of displaced people arriving in Europe and ad hoc state management of this arrival, has prompted me to apprehend performativity from the long vantage of the onlooks. <coughs> by situating refugee arrival as a massive visual regime, sorry, but situating refugee arrival as a massive visual regime raises difficult questions about compelled visibility of refugees, not to mention the complicity of the critic who attends to prevailing modes of seeing. 
So I want to reflect on two pieces of um, my own recent work, one theorising on mass refugee movement and the other on a video installation whose thermographic imaging renders refugees' bodies metabolic signifiers, implicating refugee crises with global climate crisis. And from there I want to reflect on the reception of this work in the different spaces that I've sought to communicate it. You can come in. <laughs> um, so I'm going to quote from, um, just from a page of a recent um, essay that I'm publishing this month in Theatre Journal on what I'm calling, in the context of refugee movement, processional aesthetics. With its roots in the Latin procedere, meaning to go forward, advance or proceed, Procession bears the semantic trace of its derived terms process and procedure to connote movement that is framed, predictable, sanctioned. But procession re readily exceeds its own descriptive boundaries, not least, not least in its intersection with the political. What lines of connection might be drawn between the sanctioned movement of the illustrative procession and the appearance of refugee bodies that would make sense of persistent mode of envisioning refugees as processional collectives? The technologies that adjudicate asylum-seeking bodies from the movement, uh, sorry, the moment of reception or interception to registration, biometric data collection, placement in camps, and eventual resettlement or return, represent what have become normative, coercive modes for processing forced migration. But the crisis of, of the en masse arrival of refugees alters the functioning of political borders and associated procedures. As such, the image of a procession of refugees, so-called, within the contemporary EU context, certainly, uh, speaks to something additional to the normal manifestations of a regular transit. This was exemplified in August 2015 when German authorities announced their suspension of the Dublin II regulation um, as it pertained to Syrians, precipitating the arrival of close to a million asylum seekers into Germany that year, and an effective moratorium on border controls along refugee transit routes from Turkey through Greece um, and the Balkan states. Almost a century earlier, a young Ernest Hemingway, working as a foreign correspondent in the same region, penned several columns on the escalating refugee crisis during the Greco-Turkish War. In a 1922 dispatch from Adrianople called A Silent Ghastly Procession, he describes the, quote, never-ending staggering march of the Christian population of eastern Thrace jamming the roads towards Macedonia. He wrote, the main column crossing the Maritza River at Adrianople is 20 miles long. They don't know where they are going. They left their farms, villages and ripe brown fields and joined the main stream of refugees when they heard the Turk was coming. Now they can only keep their places in the ghastly procession while mud-splashed Greek cavalry heard them along like cow punches driving steers. Adrianople, or Erdene as it's known today, is a border city in northwestern Turkey at the crossroads of Greece and Bulgaria. It lies on one of the Balkan routes into Europe, which have seen a dramatic expansion of footfall driven by the Syrian conflict. Hemingway's clear, clear bleak prose projects refugees into a visual or spectatorial paradigm as figures who enter public space through processional collectivity. He uses the word procession three times in his short piece. By deploying this word whose primary meaning is a ceremonial, formalised and intentional transit, Hemingway proposes an element of stylization, if not intention, 
that partly renders the abject movement he sees in symbolic terms. He renders it representational. Hemingway's descriptive techniques as one looking upon refugee suffering, and most strikingly his recourse to notions of procession, perform historiographic, affective and crucially imagistic work that has cognates in recent responses to refugees entering and transiting Europe. Within the context of what might be called the European refugee panopticon, in which the production of images via migration policing and by various media has constructed totalising orders of surveillance, procession is central to the visual economy associated with refugee transit, and its prevalence goes some way toward elucidating the perceptual binary that situates refugees as objects for scrutiny by the non-displaced. The movements of asylum seekers and migrants into and across Europe are more intensively imaged and spectated than ever, forming the basis of dominant aesthetic dispositions. Um, and so I trace a mode of looking and responding which I term processional aesthetics within the context of narrative and photographic representation, chiefly within news media, but also within um, also collective embodied responses via processional pro and anti-migrant practices including community marches, walks, parades, religious ceremonies, and performance art. So perceiving these representational demands as uh, domains rather as interlocked, that is, as aestheticized traces of Europe's migrant crisis, if not necessarily um, co-constitutive of one another, gives rise to key questions. What is the disposition of processional bodies? And perhaps more importantly, what is the disposition of seeing that manifests the visual economy of migrant crisis. Um, so I've developed this particular analysis gradually and with a certain amount of caution um, in the knowledge that it is quite uncommon in arts and humanities scholarship to analyse and theorise the en masse movements of asylum seekers and migrants. The long vantage is more frequently the domain of social and political science where it is located in quantitative, uh, as, a, as a quantitative and not qualitative issue. The risk of the qualitative here is that in characterising representational patterns um, in ostensibly non-representing bodies, perceiving continuities between theatre performance, image making and community enactment, and indeed by situating refugee arrival itself in representational terms, the integrity of individual lives may be obscured and analysis may end up reiterating the broad brush objectification that it so often seeks to unpick. And undoubtedly, it's, it is necessary to weigh the cost, as I, as I have done, um, of dedicating critical attention to transit and procession in this way, by isolating an aspect of their looked-uponness, even if to understand what such looking in hears and culturally it does politically, there is a risk of reifying uh, refugees as bodies of evidence, those in, ho in whom the negotiation of legislated categories of belonging precedes other unique um, signs and capacities of, of a life. Moreover, the emphasis on transiting bodies risks distilling refugee subjectivity to beleaguered mobility when the extended stasis of, for example, life within camps is, is in terms of scale, a much larger crisis. These are all aspects to weigh up and weave into critical discussion, but they're not, for me at least, reasons not to pursue the work. They do, however, mean that the work of analysis is accompanied by feelings of unease. Um, in a different but related piece of work, I've traced another iteration of the long vantage. Um, 
you, some of you might have seen this at the Barbican earlier this year, in his 2017 thermographic video installation, Incoming, Irish photographer Richard Moss enters what he acknowledges is over-photographed terrain. Instead of registering particles of matter on the visible light spectrum, Moss's bespoke camera delineates heat signatures, representing people and objects in alarming close-up and from distances of over 30 kilometres, all in fine gradations of monochrome. So the spectator of this installation is accessing data with the eyes that normally can only be felt with a sense of touch. So I've argued that this distillation of, body, of bodies into metabolic signifies gestures to the readiness with which unauthorised refugee transit is collapsed into biological metaphors of contamination, parasitism or inoculation, but incoming also attests to the reach of biometric modalities, of which, uh, which include Moss's heat-sensitised image, images, as well as retina scans, fingerprints, facial maps and full body scans confirming that biological and political systems are not merely analogous, they're interpenetrative. I've argued that together with the hypothermic and hyperthermic extremes of the military, industrial and surveillance complexes that are shot through its videography, incoming maps out a symptomology of global system dysfunction. Beyond its obvious references to refugee appearance, though not, I would note, to having arrived, and to missile technology, the verb form of the piece incoming is suggestive of doings, of transfers, processes and exchanges within a system. As a thermographic instrument, the camera sees shifts of temperature. Heat is not a material substance but a, a product of, of the thermal motion of charged particles. We're therefore not looking at the, at the materiality of human bodies first and foremost, but at what they are doing. In his exhibition note, Moss cites Giorgio Agamben's concept of bare life as a reference point. Agamben is a common touchstone in artistic and philosophical discussions of refugeehood, and while the foregrounding in the incoming of uh, corporeal duress and, and the encampment of non-citizens clearly situates the work as one that, makes, uh, that can be illuminated by Agamben, I think something subtly different or perhaps additional is emerging in and through these thermodynamic images. Bare life describes a condition of life held within or captured outside political categories. As Agamben says, life that cannot be sacrificed and yet may be killed. Moss's camera sees bodies as doings before it sees them as beings, in the sense of identity, political status, rights or lack thereof. People are imaged as nodes of heat energy that are moving through, being affected by and having effects upon their environments. We see the effect of natural laws first, political laws second. Um, I've sought to characterise incoming with reference to Timothy Morton's concept of hyperobjects, these, those things that are massively, and I'm quoting here, things that are massively distributed in time and space relative to humans. Morton situates global warming, and he resists the term climate change, within this paradigm. I think we can understand incoming as an attempt to envision the interlinked objects of global refugee crisis, the military-industrial complex, and global warming. So in both this work and in the context of processional aesthetics, I've sought to identify politics in and through a long vantage. This is also necessarily about collectivising without reducing, about envisaging refugee transit in its capacity as conglomerate movement through space. So as I noted in my abstract for this talk, I'm taking up the, the bracketed with of the event's title, 
For me, difficult feelings manifest most urgently in response to the interlinked questions of how I communicate the ideas I've summarised briefly here, to whom and for what ends. Over the last couple of years, I've detected complicated patterns of response in some, though not all, presentation contexts. Complicating the dilemma of communication further, I've noted that patterns of reception have tended to differ in the domain of academic publication. In verbal context, responses to my discussion of processional aesthetics, and even more so on Richard Moss's thermographic images of refugees, have been marked, though not necessarily dominated, by expressions of unease, sometimes anger, and by questions about the motivations of non-refugee practitioners who attempt to characterise, diagnose, or indeed aestheticise refugee movement. Such concerns do not and should not surprise me. Indeed, they're part of what my analysis grapples with. But more precisely, what I've detected is some frustration that the work of practitioners such as Moss should be given the oxygen of academic attention at all. As work that envisages refugee arrival in ways that both replicates certain characteristics of photojournalistic imaging and that raises difficult questions regarding permission and privacy, my critical analysis of, Richard, uh, of, of Moss's incoming seemed to have been all too easily construed as condoning his practice per se. So in short, my attempts to communicate in verbal contexts on both processional aesthetics and on incoming have provoked difficult feelings amongst um, audience members and within myself. Whilst negative emotional responses often give way to important critiques, I found myself wondering to what extent refugee performance studies has become shaped by a kind of disciplinary gatekeeping that curtails particular modes and subjects of inquiry, that perhaps we're talking to one another in expected or condoned ways, asking expected or condoned questions. Having said that, and moving here from verbal to publication domains, there are inevitable ways in which I, as a scholar, have to recognise that I'm a gatekeeper of a kind. I have, for example, been invited to curate a digital and textual theatre volume on performance and migration and to contribute an analysis of Moss's work to that. I remain unsure whether my analysis should appear in the issue at all, and have made sure that contributions from uh, refugees who are also practitioners take up um, half the spaces in that volume. I'm sure that on balance my anxieties about these issues have been productive ones, but I can't set aside the feeling that so far as the politics of how refugee arts scholars and practitioners speak to one another is concerned, we might be reifying distinctions between approved and non-approved topics and inadvertently becoming averse to conceptual topical and aesthetic riskiness. Uh, there are, and I should note as a final point, some very good reasons for certain barriers and distinctions in this context, and it's partly to do with territoriality within a precarious field. I've been especially mindful ever since an illuminating experience a few years ago at the annual UK Refugee Arts Festival come conference platformer, which brings together scholars and performance makers from refugee and non-refugee backgrounds. A clear and indeed angry message came across from uh, practitioners who work with refugees to those of us in academia, and it was that many practitioners perceived the impact agenda in UK academia as leaching funds that, were previously, that previously would have supported their own community-based work with refugees. That, in essence, academia is leapfrogging into their domain. The debate that ensued at Platformer that year has stayed with me and has perhaps on some level informed my reluctance to assume the position, the position of the co-participant or facilitator of refugees' artistic work. 
So to conclude, the questions I've raised here are clearly questions for me personally, but they're also, I think, applicable to other sub-disciplines within theatre and performance, where I would suggest there exist similar economies of the more embraced and the less embraced modes, topics and inquiries. These economies express themselves differently, depending on contexts of communication, power and institutional framing, but they underlie some of the difficult feelings that come along with the communication of ideas in our fields. Thank you.